and that, that's the racing mindset, right? Yeah. Amen. You know, you turn up at every circuit, even if your car's a bit of a donkey. You turn up and you know you're going to do your best or better, yeah. you know, regardless. Hi, and welcome to Helping People Perform, the podcast that gives you fascinating insights into those people whose chosen vocation is to help others perform at their best. From consultants to teachers, sports coaches to financial advisors, all of my guests share a passion for getting the most out of individuals, teams and organisations. Enjoy the episode. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Helping People Perform podcast. Delighted to be joined today uh, in the studio, uh, <laughs> the virtual studio, but not far from me over in Woking. Uh, an ex-colleague and a great man who I'm looking, to, uh, looking forward to hearing all of his stories. Um, it's mindset coach Paul Harris from Paul Harris Coaching. Paul, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you. Uh, uh, You've bigged me up a bit there. I'm quite... I'm quite pleased. I'll, I'll take that introduction. <laughs> it's all about you, mate. It's all about you. <laughs> um, I know we've we've got a bit of a shared history from our McLaren yeah. days, and we'll we'll get to some of that as we go through. But um, in terms of what got you to where you are today, what's your backstory, and uh, and what have you done to get you here? Um, like all backstories, I think there's there's a long version and a short version. Um, yeah, the, the short version is I was I was gifted redundancy in 2019, just before like the, the whole pandemic thing kicked off. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't sure what to do with myself and, and found that the coaching was kind of my thing. So uh, so with with the, the gift that I was given the time and the, the finances to be able to go and retrain and yeah. then to have most of 2020 off. Um, while everyone sat around rethinking, it was just perfect for me to to be able to to get into that. Um, the long story that goes before that, the reason that I, I realised coaching was was a thing. Um, there, there was someone who used to work at, at McLaren who um, who I'd, I'd got kind of friendly with, and we we sort of exchanged a bit of banter. We had a, a shared passion in photography, um, and one day she messaged me and and just said that. She was in trouble. She was in hospital. A mystery, mystery illness had laid her flat. Um, she was in pain, literally from the tips of her toes to her eyeballs, and didn't know what to do. Um, and her message to me, I can remember it vividly. The message to me was, "If I had the energy, I would pull the tubes out and end it now." Wow. Um, which, yeah, your your reaction is exactly that. It's kind of like it, it wakes you up a little bit. And so, having done a little bit of coaching techniques at McLaren and things like that, and then I started. I just spent the day talking to this this lady and you know she obviously progressed she came out of hospital she went in you know rehabilitated and things like that but then sent me a message a little while later saying I don't think you understand that you were the only person I could think of to reach out to and you genuinely saved my life that day wow um and so when I showed my wife the message and I said, look, this is what I'm thinking of doing. Can we both look at each other and say, you can't not do this, you know? Um, so, you know, in a roundabout way, it crept up on me and then I got the opportunity to to capitalise on it. Yeah. But I know um, when you were at McLaren, although you did some coaching, that wasn't yeah. your job at McLaren, was it? And uh, so <laughs> what, what's your background before that, you know? Uh, oh, right. Um, well, Kind of 
everywhere and nowhere. Um, I, I started with in, in the motor racing industry in 1990 um, with a company who were then called Tag Electronics that had been set up by McLaren to develop the first fully electronic engine control unit for Formula One. And there were lots of trials and tribulations that went through that. We didn't, we got on our first, fully on our first race car in 93 with gearbox control. And then in 94 with full car control, which was the active suspension car and the, um, the one that Ayrton won famously at um, Donington with. Um, and, and so I kind of stayed with that. I then wanted to progress. I wanted to go trackside. I had trouble leaving Tag Electronics to get into McLaren Racing. That was blocked and there were all sorts of politics in the way. So I took a chance and I just said, I'm out. And I, I, I just left um, and went to a team called British American Racing, um, where I was developing the chassis controls for the Honda cars. Um, just kind of had the, the feeling that it wasn't going very far. Um, and then about 10 months into that job, I got a phone call um, because at that time, there's there, well, there still is a no poach agreement between teams. Yeah. So I got a phone call from a, a colleague who said, are you still interested in the trackside role with McLaren? I was, yeah, of course. Um, I was commuting from Woking to Brackley every day. So I was doing a 150 mile round trip every day. Um, and it was costing me more than I was earning. And it was like, you know, really digging deep for this one. It was, it was killing me, to be honest, Paul. And anyway, yeah, so this guy phoned out. He said, are you still interested? Yeah, I'm still interested. He said, well, meet so-and-so in the Maybury Inn on your way home tomorrow night. So literally, I pulled up, went in there. Um, my, future, my future boss was in there. And we signed, I think we signed a contract, but we did the deal over a pint of beer. Um, <laughs> like, you know, um, that was it. Six weeks later, I was back at McLaren, um, traveling trackside uh, with the test team. Right. Um which was gruesome. Um, we were we were traveling from November to February, um, pretty much constant, um, you know, 18 hour days, very, very cold. You know, even Barcelona, it snows in Barcelona and you know, things like that. And it, it wasn't it wasn't particularly good fun. Um, and then rearranged stuff, rearranged at, at McLaren at the factory, and I ended up being factory based looking after the electronics on the race cars, like all the race cars. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, 250 electronic components per vehicle per weekend and turning them around for the next week. Yeah. Um, and then that that stopped being fun after about 10 years or so. Um, and with McLaren had started a company called um, McLaren Applied Technologies, who at the time were just doing brilliant fun stuff. We were we worked with the, the Olympic bobsleigh team, the um the the skeleton team. Um, wheelchair tennis, sailing, um, UK rugby, um, you know, just doing like human performance analysis and instrumenting people's bodies, basically, and taking Formula One technology, sticking it on people and taking the data and analysing it and seeing how we could perform more. So I, I did that and that was like, I can remember saying to the, the guy who ran the company at the time, this is truly better than working for a living. You know, and all, all the way through my career, I've used that line. I don't know how I've used two lines. This is better than working for a living. And I don't know how I cope in the real world. Right. And thankfully, I've never had to challenge either of those because I've never found anything better than what I'm currently doing. And I still don't know how I'll cope in the real world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, because uh, I, I joined uh, Applied Technologies um, a few well a few years after it 
got up and running um mm. and yeah some particularly some of the early stuff and i know you were highly involved in some of the medical um pieces as well yes you? And, uh, yeah. and can you tell us about that i mean just as a, a general case study because that's a, a fascinating one in its own right. yeah yeah i i the two that spring to mind one was we first we developed a system actually we used the system on lots of different um scenarios but we, we developed a system that could be worn by people who had been diagnosed with motor neurone disease, um, which was really humbling because I didn't realize until I got involved in that, that the expected, the life expectancy of someone who's been diagnosed with uh, motor neurone disease is five years. Right. Um, and it normally takes at least a year for people to be diagnosed because they'll rule everything else out first. Yeah. Um, so, we, it was it was body worn sensors that measured how people's walking, how their gait changed over a year, yeah. um, and we did that along with some speech analysis and things like that. And all the all the they wore like simple instrumentation, which was then transmitted to a, a small hub they had, which then telephoned up to um, the cloud where we ran all our data analytics from. Mm. And I think I went to. One of the first trials, I went to the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford, which is where we were basing it out of. And I met the clinician there and I was taking her through the system that we designed. Um, and I walked through a waiting room full of people. And she said, these are all the people on the trial. Wow. Right. And now when I look back, statistically, not one of those people is still alive. You know, and... We were running a trial that our part was going to be a year. Then all the analytics had to come off the back of that. And there were these 20 people sitting there who were never going to see the results of the trial they were doing. Mm. You know, and you look at it and you think, you know, that there's that saying, isn't there? The, the, is it wisdom is, a, is an old man who plants a tree that he'll never sit in the shade on? Yeah. Right. That's exactly what these people were doing. They were giving something serious back, you know, because they wanted to. It was going to do them no good at all. Um, and that was kind of like, that was kind of humbling because you get to that point where you think I'm, I'm just messing about with technology here. Right. I've, I've done something that all my life I've worked almost in, in order to indulge people's passions and entertain people. Yeah. And suddenly it's led to this, where I'm actually asking people to really give something back, mm. you know, and, and I felt that was that one of those moments, you know, when you think you're doing something a bit grown up here, kid, yeah. you know, you, you know this mind, is, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. Absolutely. And it was, it's things like that. You think, you know, this is, it's just like these people are giving so much, mm. you know, and the other, the other time was I was working on um, a clinical trial using the same kind of kit for a, a, a bunch of people who were obese and we were running a study we split these people into three groups. We There was one group who just went to the gym and followed a gym regime. There was one group who just tried to moderate their eating in their own way. And there was another group who went to the gym and wore one of our, see how this is because it was worn on the sternum, yeah. um, wore one of our body sensors, which monitored their heart rate, their calorific. You know, we then worked out their calorific burn. It monitored how they were moving and how easily they were moving. And these people who were... They were unwilling participants almost. They didn't know what they were signing up for. Um, and they had been, we, for, for want of a better way of putting it, they'd probably never 
achieved or won anything significant in their lives okay and suddenly these people are seeing that they're losing weight faster than other people they are becoming winners so it was it was bigger than we're just creating a healthy life for them and we're re-educating them and, and i remember one lady um i think my photograph with her is still in the the mclaren brochure somewhere and as you know she had type 2 diabetes um and so we were asking you know like the heart rate monitors where you wear where you got the sticky on patches we were asking them to wear those and you had to wear one just down on the bottom of your rib cage and one up so like so they were diagonally opposed and the um because she had the diabetes she, her skin was really really sensitive and she was wearing these patches and they they were coming out sores like you know like proper like bruising and sores and raw patches uh and i said to her, i said for goodness sake just give yourself a week off just stop you know and she was like oh no i can't do that i've started this now i'm going to finish and she was literally finding new patches of skin to put these things on every week and she was refusing because she was just so invested in doing something good for herself mm. you know uh, and again looking at, at that it's just helping someone to do something to empower them to do something for themselves yeah. you know and say yeah you can do this you know maybe that's what sort of that's brought the coach out in me anyway i guess yeah. you know i guess that that empathy has already been there but those two things sort of, of all the other things i've done mm -hmm. um those are the two standout moments i think oh wonderful that they yeah that the element of you've taken as you say this passion this hobby sport which you know yeah. it, it, it's, yeah. a, it's yeah. a, um although it's a big business around it it's generally a big business for for hobbyists who just happen to have some decent funding behind them <laughs> um but there's, there's a lot, a lot yeah. of big business but it is ultimately a hobby and moving that and applying those thoughts and applying those methodologies and the technologies mm. like you've said it into other applications that really impact people um mm. you know that, that's what i loved about the the time mm. for, for applied as well you know it's it's the yeah you're helping people by giving them a new perspective and that's yeah. uh, and that, that that mindset and that formula one mindset in some ways is uh is something mm. that really helped people so maybe that brings us nicely on to uh, uh to what you do today then so um tell us a bit more about paul harris coaching who do you help and how do you help them well paul harris coaching is based around the mindset that i built up um in the motor racing business um i realized when, when I started coaching, a lot of coaches will go out there and say, I've got a 12-step program. You're going to pay me this. You're going to do that. Da, 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 da. And this is what we'll achieve. Um, and straight away, my winning mindset said, well, I don't want a 12-step program. I want eight. Right. Right. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to fast track you. Right. This is, we're the, this is no bullshit. We're going straight into it. Right. Um, so, and, and the, the people I speak the language of is people like myself. It is motor racing professionals um you know uh, the, there's there's still um a if you like a bit of a macho thing about it that you know you never explain never complain just crack on superhero culture right um and i know a lot of people who who have broken because of the pressure um especially now the guys are traveling what is it 20 20 22 races yeah. a year something like that you know, and, and the teams are under a budget restriction, so they're only employing one set of people. So these guys are, are off, you know. And then someone said to me, my family gets what's left. Wow. 
right? And that's not on, is it? Yeah. Right? You know, your family deserves more or at least equal to what the company's getting. Yeah. Right? And as you pointed um, out, and, and if, on, it, it's not as if they're living a glamorous lifestyle while they're out there. No. There's this perception, isn't there, of the, the traffic. Oh, yeah. It's, it's just, that's not really reality and it's not no. what it no. takes out of the individual either, is it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean... You know, I, I, I don't know, I've lost count how many circuits I've been to, and all I could tell you really about any one town is the colour of the garage doors. Right. You know, everything else blurs into sort of like insignificance, you know, oh, yeah, I think there might have been an Irish bar in this one, or there might have been, you know, there's my favourite restaurant in Barcelona or whatever, but you rarely see that. Mm. You know, you just know what colour the garage doors are. And, you know, while, and it's so it's, I guess with a lot of businesses, they they rely on the passion of the employee, okay? Um, because I firmly believe that money is not a motivator, right? Money is tokens to eat food or buy a nice house or whatever. It's not, it's not what drives you. It's a result of what you do. Okay? Um, so, and motor racing isn't the best paid industry in the world. Um, so these guys are driven on passion and they're relying on you know the the teams and everyone rely on that. You've only got to see the way they whip people up at the at the factory. You know, certainly especially this time of year, launch time, when the factory's all decorated in sponsors' colours, and we've been doing this for X amount of years, and this, that, and the other. And the bottom line is actually what they mean is we've been screwing the thumb thumb screws down on our employees hard every year for this amount of time. So these guys are are working hard, um, and, and ladies, but they've got a support network behind them that doesn't necessarily get thanked, doesn't get any kudos. Um, they maybe get a Christmas party once a year if they're lucky, mm-hmm. right? Where where you get to wear a posh frock or, or a black tie and you go out and you, you pretend for that one evening you're a person of substance, right? But for the other 364 days of the year, it's just a bit crap. Right. You know, if you're stuck at home and you don't understand and you're you're phoning up, you're, you're getting phone calls from the circuit, you know, um, so what I'm looking, I'm I'm helping the people who, on both sides of the coin, okay, there's the guys who are away, and actually, to be fair, the people who travel don't get that much time to talk, right? And when they do, they're talking to their family, but their family are taking the slack. Yeah. Yeah, and they're the ones who I, I get to talk to a fair bit, you know, just like, and, and a lot of that is how do I help so-and-so do this? You know, um, so it's like second hand, if you like. Um, but also, I find more and more these days that I'm speaking to people who, again, like myself, um, have left a an environment they know, mm. a comfortable environment where they can make the excuses for not being particularly happy because I'm getting paid, because it's local, because this, that and the other. Um, and they, they've realised after a little while, as I think as everyone does, that's not enough. And I want something more. So they're the people I'm helping them find that something more. I'm helping them set their businesses up, not in the business coaching way. I could never tell anyone how to run accounts or, you know, where they should market themselves or this, that, the other. But I can tell them how to think like a winner and behave like a winner and win before they even achieve too much. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, take that right mindset in. Yeah. And that, that's the racing mindset, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, you turn up at every circuit, even if your car's a bit of a donkey. You turn up and you know you're going to do your best or better, yeah. you know, regardless. Um, so yeah, they're the, they're the people. It's, yeah, and and yeah. how are you finding the experience f- 
for, for yourself? It's better than working for a living. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and... you know, it, it, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I couldn't cope in the real world. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's, do you know what? It's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. There's nothing better. You'll know this, I'm sure. There's nothing better than finishing a meeting, having seen that light bulb come on in someone's eyes. Yeah. Right. When you take someone you, in an hour, you can turn someone around from, I really, I don't even know what I want to do to, this is what I'm going to do only for the next week, yeah. right? I never look too far forwards because long-term plans change, right? There are certain things that are beyond our control, but next week is firmly within your control. Next month is in your control. Um, and just being able to make people realize that they're not, they're not trying to solve the whole problem. They're only looking, they're, they're looking at the top, top third or so of the iceberg yeah. and all the stuff that's under the waterline is immaterial right now. You know, because as you take more and more of the top, it comes up. So getting to that point where suddenly, where you just see something going, oh my God, I've got it. Right. That is like, yeah, it, it's the best feeling in the world. Yeah. And what you I know? love about that short-term action approach, you know, it's, it's one that I I try to follow with uh, with myself and, and helping others is the, it really embeds that I'm doing something and that positivity that comes through, I might not be achieving that end goal right now, but I'm doing something to move myself towards it. And there's nothing more mm. motivating than getting that momentum going, is there? So, mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And it's, it's that first step, yeah. right? You know, it's, it's the, the first step off the diving board, mm. right? You know, it's, that's the scary one. Once you're falling towards the water, you're on your way. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's not like all you can do is change how you enter the water, right? right? Um, uh, uh, and it's that, and and so I I speak to people a lot about imposter syndrome, right? Um, which I think is a little bit of an overused term mm. now. It, it seems to be it's funny. I was talking to someone about this the other day. Everyone seems to need a label right now, mm. right? Um, and imposter syndrome is a big one that. Again, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm making assumptions, but I'm sure you, you're not unfamiliar with with the oh, feelings. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and, and and again, I remember the first time I walked into a Formula One garage, and everyone except me seemed to know what they were doing, right? And I was almost like walking around with this big neon sign pointing, "New boy, new boy," <laughs> you know. Um, and and actually, I, I think there's there's a degree of there's a fear of failure for sure. Right, which people are that that grows big in people's heads, um, you know, and that actually motivates you to stop. Mm. Okay, but I think what people don't realize as well is they carry a fear of success, right? Okay, because success means you are someone different, mm. you are suddenly who you said you were going to be, right. Now, you know, if you look at you, know, we're talking about racing, right? You look at that eleven-year-old Lewis Hamilton who went up to Ron Dennis at the Autosport Awards and said, "I'm going to drive for you, and I'm going to be world champion." Right? Right? That is a huge belief in his own success. Yeah. Right? He knew he had at eleven years old. He knew in ten years' time who he was going to be. Mm. He knew what he was going to look like. He knew, you know, pretty much who he was going to drive for, who was going to pay his bills, and he may not have known how he was going to get there, but he had this belief. He had this understanding. Whereas a lot of people, you know, you'll, you'll see 
well, you used to see, you don't see it so much now. People say, if I win the lottery, it won't change me. Wrong. Yeah. <laughs> right? Absolutely wrong. Because it will change you. Your ex Every experience you have changes you. Um, and so people who say, I, if you say, let's let's say when I started out being a coach, I said to people, I'm going to be a life coach, right? And I can, I can remember conversations at, at McLaren before I left. I'm going, to go, I'm going to go and do coaching. And in my head, I was thinking, the reason really I'm going to go and do coaching is because I really don't want to sit through another interview. You know, I don't want to interview with another panel. And that was kind of like a big motivation. And people were saying to me, oh, you'll be brilliant at that. You're good at listening to people. You talk sense. You, you know, some people even said I was wise, right? They obviously were drunk. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and so I was like, all the time I was basking in that, yeah, everyone says I'm going to be good. Everyone says I'm going to be great. But when that stops, when you actually start being who you say you were going to be, mm. all of that encouragement goes away, mm. right? Because now you're you're no longer saying you're going to be doing something you're doing it yeah. and actually all those people said oh i'll come to you for coaching oh yeah you can help me they're not there mm. right and you'll stand alone so you have to know who you're going to be when success comes mm. um you know and I, I take people through that that routine of I've, I've got i've got one that i use as a marketing thing um if if you can indulge me for a minute no always um <laughs> just for a moment then just imagine if you can um or no you are going to imagine right you're standing in the doorway of a room okay and inside this room there's a party going on okay and as you look in the room you realize it's a birthday party and you see the colors maybe there's balloons and streamers banners tablecloths cakes whatever in this room and you see all those brightly colored things that go with parties and you can hear the conversation the hubbub and the people saying oh well done you know congratulations da, 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 and what have you and then you see whose party it is and it's a, an old person sitting with their back to you and you realize this is it's an 80th birthday party right and so you you can see all the people and everything going on you can see the person whose birthday is and as you enter the room and you go and sit next to this person if you look at this person, I want you to realize that that's you, right? That is you on your 80th birthday, okay? And as you look at this person, you look and you see what they're wearing. You look and you see around them who's surrounded by them. What's this person thinking? How healthy are they? What are they wearing? Where are they living? Who are they surrounded by? Okay? And all of that is governed by who you are now, right. okay? And what you... What you choose to do when we switch this podcast on affects what that 80-year-old Paul T star is going to look like. Mm. Okay. And that's where you then begin to lose the fear of success because it gives you a goal. Yeah. Right. Now, with a following wind, you'll go on from that 80th birthday for another 15, 20 years, maybe. Right. You know, but everything changes what you do. And this is what people starting up a business, right? We've all seen The Apprentice. We've seen Dragon's Den. People come on with a killing idea, right? And they all believe this is what they're going to do, yeah. okay? And then they get slated. They get sacked by Alan Well, they get sacked by Alan Sugar, and then they sit in the taxi and say, he's made the biggest mistake of his life. He da, da, da. Where are all those people now, mm. right? They didn't believe it. They didn't know who they were going to be. 
one or two, say, who've been on the Dragon's Den have gone and done it on their own, right? But unless you have that absolutely clear vision of what you're going to be, and to come right back to your question, this is what I'm helping people see. Sorry, I rambled. No, no, this, it's fascinating. You know. <laughs> I'd cut you <laughs> off if, if I too much. I know you too well. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. I mean, that that's a, you know, those sort of exercise and, and the, the sort of things that it's great insight for people and hope it's great insight for the audience mm. as well to think mm. when you do go to a coach, this, you know, this is some of the stuff that you can go through and some of the ways in which they can help. Mm. Um, mm. It's not all exercises and things like that. There's a lot of conversation no. bits and pieces, but it it's that element of, um, helping people get over the fear of how do I go out and find help? You know, it, when, totally. I, when I hear about mindset coach, why should I engage with that? What am I going to get out of it? And, and hopefully, yeah. hopefully that's given people some, some fantastic insights there. Pretty I much. hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. So if we switch it around a little bit, um, who helps you? How do you help yourself perform? Um, several ways. Um, I read a lot. I'm currently reading um, a book, Called, I'll show you actually, I've got it here, not far away, a book called The Tools by Phil Stutz. Right. Um, now, there's a film on Netflix that was filmed by, um, all his names there, isn't it? Jonah Hill. I keep, yeah. Um, okay, about the psych, uh, psychiatrist, is it? About the psychiatrist, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so this is the book written by his psychiatrist and talking about the tools. Um, and that I would recommend anyone read. Right. Um, because it just changes your way of thinking. Um, I have my own coach. There's no way I could expect to coach anybody without eating my own dog food. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've got to have, you've got to have a coach. Life's too bloody complicated not to have one. Yeah. Right. Um, and I want to be the best I can be. So I, I have a coach. Um, various other things I read. Um, I'm trying to think, I'm just looking up at my bookcase, see where it is. Um, you know, book, the book that changed my life was one called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely life changer. And just things like that. And, and I'll watch Jim Rowan um, podcasts. I'll watch Brene Brown podcasts. Um, but inspiration comes from everywhere. Hmm. Right? We're surrounded by wise, clever people. And sometimes they say stuff without even realising it. And it that goes in and it sticks, you know, and it's the same with everybody. You can either listen to what is going on around you and take inspiration from it and turn it around in your own way to suit your narrative, or you can just ignore it completely. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of, yeah, I, I, I suck inspiration from everywhere. <laughs> good, good stuff. Like a sponge. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. If you stop learning, you stop living, don't you? Yeah. What's the point? You know? So who, if you had the opportunity to help any individual team or organisation with the skill set that you've got, who would you want that to be? That's an interesting one. Um, there's obviously a lot of my ex-colleagues that, you know, I, I'm, you, you can almost say, I know you need help, but they don't. You know, that they're still just too sucked into their own their own world. I've started reaching out to um, a few um, up and coming drivers now. Um, there was um, a, a young lady who just posted on um, LinkedIn recently saying that she's just 
finished a season in Formula Women, which is like a talent contest thing. Um, and I just reached out to her and I said, and I think a couple of our colleagues did as well, and said, you know, this is me, this is what I do, you know, love what you're doing at the moment. I love the way you're speaking, um, you know, uh, but if I can offer anything, please just get in touch. And that's, that's a lot. I, I, it, it's daft because I have to hold back in me deep inside here there's a compulsive helper yeah right <laughs> i know that one <laughs> yeah and that's not healthy yeah. right because you try and help the unhelpable mm. you know and i learned to wind that back a little bit but i cannot not encourage talent that i see right. you know um and if if someone like this this young lady in the, the formula w her, her name's um jody sloss go and look her up she's right. doing really well um, but you know, if if someone at 21 years old from a little village in Scotland goes out there and says, This is me, this is what I'm doing, mm. and I've been told I've got talent, then I'm all over that like a tramp on chips. Mm. You know, I I'm I just, you know, and and I'll reach out and if she if if she says not for me just yet or whatever, that's fine. Yeah. But I'm here, right. you know. Um so who am I looking for? Anyone who knows that they have something mm. and just want to be sure that they're doing the right thing, they want to satisfy their own mind. Right. Um, Team-wise, any of the motor racing team, right. any of them, because, again, I want to break through the, the bravado and the, the, the attitude and, and things like that and make it real for these guys, you know, and help them perform. Right. That's what it's all about, mate. That's what it's all yeah. About. Yeah. You know, the drivers have coaches as well. You know, they have physios, they have coaches, they have nutritionists. You name it, they have it. They've got someone doing their PR for them. They've got someone, you know, brushing their hair, cleaning their teeth, and all that malarkey, ironing their clothes, right? There's blokes in the factory. There's, you know, at McLaren, what are there? 3,000 people at MTC. Yeah. Okay. Not all of them work directly with the Formula One team, but there's, 3,000 people who don't get that level of support, okay? And and if if a, a driver with talent deserves that support, so does everyone else who's supporting them. Yeah, oh, that's wonderful, because I think that's, that's a really important part of, yes, it's very visible because of the level of financial uh, implications and, uh, and initiatives and, and all the rest of it that goes along with that. Um, at the uh, at, at the driver level, but everybody needs to, be, if they want to be high performance in whatever they do, mm. then having someone who can help them along the way is, is only going to accelerate that, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Brilliant. And, and I'm going to switch the question around a little bit. So, who would you like to sit down with, have a coffee, have a have a beer, have a meal with, and learn from, so that so that your performance gets improved? That's interesting because I've been very lucky. Um, I've, I've not sat down for coffees and beers, but I've spoken to a lot of influential and well-known people. Um, I used to say, but I've met everyone pretty much from Aussie Osborne to the Duke of Edinburgh. Right? Um, <laughs> are they not the same person? I always thought. <laughs> I think they possibly are. I think never they saw possibly them in the room are. together, did you? <laughs> <laughs> no, funny enough. Funny enough, never been seen next to each other. Um, but I think from in terms of, there's a couple of people that come to mind, um, but Ron Dennis for sure. 
right? Not the Ron Dennis who ran McLaren. Okay, not that single-minded Ron Dennis who I want to talk to him today. Right. Okay, because I know what he's up to right now. Um, and I spoke to some of the guys who are still quite close to him recently, and I know that he's a whole different person. Um, and I would like to know whether hindsight would change anything, whether he would change what he's done. Um, I'd like to know how he stayed motivated, right? what drove him to what he's got, you know, and and actually how he compartmentalises um, when he left. Were you, were you at McLaren? Yeah. Was... Well left, yeah. Yep. So, and then he invited everyone who had been there to a big do at the Albert Hall. Mm. Okay. And I don't know if you went or not, but there were, I don't know, 3,000, 3,500 people there. Yeah. And the Albert Hall's a big place, mm. right? And we all watched Cirque du Soleil, as we regularly did with Ron, on, on, his, on his dollar, which was very kind of him. Um, and then at the end of the performance, Ron walked on the stage. Now, Ron's a tall guy. He's, what, 6'2", six, 6'3", six, something yeah. like that. And he sat in the middle of this stage, right? And he always said, whenever he had a microphone in his hand, one of his first things he would say, which actually is a brilliant imposter syndrome, I'm not very good at public speaking. I hate doing this, right? right? Not the way to get your audience on side. So I'd like to have a chat with him about that. Mm. But then he sat there and he held, as he spoke about his time at McLaren, he held like silence in the room, three and a half thousand people he held in the palm of his hand. And I would just like to know how he can close the door on that chapter, mm. right, and compartmentalise it and put it to one side and move on, single focus to doing something else now. Yeah. You know? oh, fascinating, man. I, 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 yeah. uh, I wasn't at that do, unfortunately. I couldn't couldn't make that, but I've heard a lot of great stories from that night. And uh, Yeah. Uh, but I, one of the striking things for me in my early days, and probably the imposter syndrome bit, joining McLaren, being in the McLaren Technology Centre, and walking along those uh, those sort of skywalks, and, uh, and yeah, yeah, and yeah. I see this guy coming towards me, and he's uh, you know, as you say, he's a lot bigger than I anticipated. Mm. He just had an aura about him, yeah, and, and yeah, just tremendous focus for all all of his uh, quibbles and other bits and pieces yeah. in terms of how, to, but uh, yeah. You, the whole of certainly of McLaren Technology Centre and the McLaren team could not have been achieved without Ron Dennis. It wouldn't no, be, absolutely. It wouldn't be there. Or it certainly wouldn't be anywhere near the same. So, uh, no. yeah, an amazing, amazing yeah. guy. You, yeah. you, said, uh, yeah. you said two people came to mind. Who was the second? The second was a guy who sadly passed away some time ago, which is why I'd like to spend time with him now. Um, he was um, he was Bruce McLaren's race engineer. He um, he came over. He's from. He came over from the states. Um, he studied at, at, um, at MIT. Came over, and he was working. I don't know who he was working with, but he was at Cooper's in in Surbiton, um, when Bruce was like doing stuff in the corner. And his own words. This is a guy called Tyler Alexander. I don't know if you ever. He's got a room named after him at MTC yeah, now, quite rightly so. But his words were, I'll, I'll send you a link to a video of his actually, but his words were, these guys seem to be onto something, I think I'll stick around and see what they're doing, right? right? And this was 1963, right. right? And he never went home. And um, and so he he hung around um, and he was, he was on the race team right up until retirement age, so, so about 60, and he was the one that everyone went to, mm. right? 
Um, but he never he never invited people in. He was sarcastic, irascible, wise, funny, just everything you'd expect from an old wise American fella, right? And there was there was one time that again, this is a moment that sticks, right? There was one time we were testing. I think we were. I think it was Alex Verts was driving the car. I know we were in Barcelona because the doors were red. Um, <laughs> and and he shunted massively. The car had completely annihilated itself. And so obviously you get that five or 10 minutes where everything's nice and calm before the car gets back to the garage, right? And I was sitting next to him. Um, it was it was my car that had shunted. His car was okay. Um but obviously the circuit's red, so everyone stops. And I'm just scrolling through the data to see where the accident started to happen and, and what have you, what had gone wrong. And moreover, was it my fault? Or should I have picked something up that was wrong? Um, the car arrived, cover's come off, it's dumped on the garage floor, and suddenly it's like someone kicked a wasp's nest. Right, like everyone. <laughs> and I had a lot of kit on the car. So I went over and I saw the number one mechanic and I said, right, I need to get this off, this off, this off. Let me know when it's clear that I can get in there. And I went back to what we called the battle stations. And Tyler was stood there. He's got, he's got his mouse and he's taken the ball out and he's given it a clean. He's put that back in. He's got his chair upside down. He's tightening the screws up. I said, Tyler, it's bloody chaos around there. And he said, yeah. And I said, you know, doesn't this fire you up? Doesn't this get your adrenaline pumping? Don't you want to know what's going on? And he looked at me. And this is a strange thing, Paul. Everyone's at McLaren for some reason called me Mr. Harris. I don't know why, right? But everyone did. And Tyler just looked at me straight in the eye. He said, Mr. Harris, he said, we're all only born with so many heartbeats and none of us know how many there are. So it'd be an awful shame to waste any of them. <laughs> right? And that's the guy, yeah. you know? And if I could go back, you know, and he's told me countless stories of simple things, like when he was sharing a flat with Bruce McLaren, how they... How they like Bruce turned up one day with you know those rubber showers that you put on the taps, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. and things like that. And he was saying how they were all like, Whoa, and Ty's going, Shit, we got we got them in the wall, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like that. you know, and and just his take on life, mm. you know, a guy who had been there, seen it, done it, and his take on life was still so level and so sensible that he would ask you why you thought the need to do something. And would just stand there and wait for you to come up with an answer, you know. But he would also take no prisoners. Um, just very quickly, this is one that, that him and my daughter keep re referring to. There was there was a guy in the garage who had a slight stutter, and uh, when he was under pressure, not more of a stand, yeah, he just delayed his words. It, it wasn't an affliction as such. I'm, I'm not saying we we bash people like that, of course, um, but you know we. Um, there's something had gone wrong. I can't remember what it was. Uh, and and Tyler was talking to this guy, and he could be quite imposing. He was he was saying, "What happened? Who let this happen?" Da 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 da. And this engineer was going to Tyler. He was he was trying to say who did something, but he, he just kept going, "Who who who?" Like that. And Tyler just stopped. Me. I'll stop you right there. Who who who? What are you a fucking owl? <laughs> you know. So he would cut you dead like that as well. There was, and I think that's where I get my no bullshit approach to coaching from. You know, let, let's let's cut out the excuses. Let's cut out this, that, and the other. Let's lay it flat and be honest with each other. Wonderful. Oh, I mean, 
there's there's so many stories we can we could talk for hours i'm sure and um, which maybe brings us nicely to the last bit which is how do people find out more if they want to hear more of these stories if they want to get in touch with with uh, with you and uh, and start that coaching conversation and understand their mindset how do they get in touch with you okay probably the easiest thing to do is to go through linkedin um, and drop me a line on there. I've got a Paul Harris coaching page and a Paul Harris page. Right. I'm contactable through both. The, the content on both is pretty much the same. Okay. Um, website, paulharriscoaching.com. Um, social media is all Paul Harris Coaching. Um, so either drop me an email through the website at paulharriscoaching.com or through LinkedIn is probably your best. Social stuff tends to get lost in the noise. Right. Okay. So, okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. So LinkedIn, the best one. and more yeah. information on the website i'll make sure those yeah. links are in there for everyone yeah. to, to get in touch oh mate we, we could talk for hours i'm sure but uh really appreciate your time today and uh and thanks so much for being on the show paul harris no thank you very much thank you very much it's been a been a pleasure uh, sorry if i waffled a bit no it's it's, it's all good value mate <laughs> love it <laughs> bye now cool cheers thanks for listening to today's episode if you liked what you heard then please give the podcast a rate, review and share. I'm Paul Teasdale, and from sausage making to banking, oil and gas to Formula One, I help people perform. If you'd like to find out more and have a conversation, contact me via helpingpeopleperform.com.